Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we hear the journeys, the mistakes, the lessons learned from top industry leaders in the data space, AI, and machine learning. People that are working out in the field today, making a massive impact. We discuss with them data strategy, building teams, stakeholder management, interesting applications of AI and machine learning. And that's all designed and geared to help you take your career to the next level. Hopefully this podcast series gives you a lot of value, a lot of learnings, a lot of ideas, and hopefully you're sharing those with your friends and your colleagues and the people around you. My name is Felipe Flores. I am so thankful that you're here, that you're listening. Thank you so much for that. Today's episode is an extremely interesting one. We're speaking with Rudradev Mitra, who goes by Ru. He is an author and speaker in the AI space. He published a book in 2018 called Creating Value with Artificial Intelligence. Great book. He's also had seven startups, has been working in AI for over 10 years, and his focus is building AI for social good. He is relentless at chasing that goal, making a difference in people's lives through AI. His philosophies and perspectives are incredibly interesting. I hope that you enjoy the episode. Here's a conversation with Ru. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Ru. Ru, thank you so much for making the time. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you, Philip, to have me. Looking forward to the conversation. Me too, very much so. Thank you. At the beginning of our conversation, I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in the data space? What was it that pulled you into the, the area? So I started, well, data, if I say about AI, I started AI in 2002. And I was still an undergrad student in India. And always I was fascinated by puzzles. And at that time, AI was more about solving puzzles, planning. So I started my career in AI mostly because I loved mathematics. I love solving problems. That basically made me start with AI. And how did you discover it in the first place? If I remember, that was basically I read an article. So because 2002 was when I first started it. But I think I somewhere read about AI briefly. But at that time, AI was a research topic. AI was not as big as now. It was mostly mm -hmm. a computer science a sector or a domain of a computer science. So I was an undergrad student of computer science. So of course, I was access to what are the different other, what are the things that is happening in the computer science. So that's how perhaps I read somewhere. I know I didn't have a course on AI at that time. So most likely I read it and that's how I get to know about AI. Very nice. Yeah, I remember when I was an undergrad, there was a subject of machine learning and everyone was so afraid of it. I remember everyone saying that it was the, the toughest course and a lot of the really good people struggled with it. And I remember because of that, there was very few people that were taking it. This is, yeah, also about the same time. Yeah, and then obviously now it's something that everyone needs to learn about. So it's interesting how things change. Can you give us a, a bit of an overview of your career trajectory since you first discovered AI until now? When I started working on AI in 2002, my first accomplishment was I published a paper in 2002, December, in an international conference that was around AI planning. And that paper was read by a professor in Germany who worked in a research lab called PZD in Bremen. And he invited me to come over to Germany and work for him on a project called RoboCup. So then 2003, January, I went to Germany, was still an undergrad student. He gave me a scholarship, which I'm very lucky to have. And from there, uh, I worked on soccer playing robots. So even at that time, there was this competition called RoboCup, where different university teams were competing to win the competition. It was a global competition where robots were playing football. 
From there onwards, I went to Belgium. I got another scholarship to work in a research lab, which is on law and AI. And what they were trying to do was NLP to analyze law text. After that, I started my PhD, uh, also in Leuven, in Belgium, in the AI group in the University of Leuven. But I left uh, that up the first year, primarily for various reasons, but I thought one of the main reasons is that I was not able to see the practical application of AI while doing my PhD. And by that time, I already had published around, if I'm not wrong, six to eight research papers. Then I went to work in a startup in Brussels, which was building an ontological-driven software. So that was actually for banking sector. So that was one of the, I would say, quite advanced AI at that time. That was 2004 and five. What we were doing was instead of representing knowledge in a piece of code, for example, when you are building a software, often the knowledge, the class that we are representing in a Java class or a C class. And what does that do is if your knowledge is changing, so you have to change that class. And that often breaks the code. So what we had ended up building was an ontological language, which we're using at that time, if I'm right, all to represent the knowledge. And then we had built a compiler, which was reading that knowledge and generating the code. So the code was being generated rather than written. So even if someone comes and changes the knowledge, the code would not break because the code is being generated from the knowledge, which was, I thought, was way advanced at given that time. And, you know, we're trying to sell the banking sector. We started working with AXA. We built a proof of concept. We were also showing that to ING and various banks. And to my knowledge, I think that was one of the first real-world applications of AI in the banking sector. From there onwards, I went to work in UK. I was uh, in the in Aberdeen. I was working for UK government project, which was around understanding data from different sources. So they have collected a lot of data from different scientists, land scientists, social scientists, but they all had different semantics and syntax. So they wanted to build a tool that could understand the data from all these different sources. I worked for that for a year. So that's basically my AI research from 2002 till 2008. After that, I went on to do a master's in Cambridge. And then I only, my other experience part comes from building a startup. So in 2013 to 15, I built a startup in Belgium, which was about on machine learning, which was collecting data, driving data, and making some analysis on top of the driving data. And then the last couple of years, basically, I spent mostly writing, I wrote a book, basically doing other things in AI. So that's my, basically my, my career in AI. That's amazing. That is so impressive that you're doing such bleeding edge applications back in the early and mid 2000s and then got into startup land. So how did you find the transition when you came into startup land and then started creating your own company? What was something that you didn't expect about that journey that surprised you? Well, I think one of the things that always interested me was the how difficult it is to sell technology. And that I realized right away when I was building part of this company, building this software, uh, AI software for the banking sector. Although I thought what we were building was way advanced than anything out there and perhaps better than anything out there. It was very difficult to sell and convince to the business. And that's the same challenge when I started the business, uh, my own startups. I realized that just because something is a great technology doesn't mean that you can sell to businesses or people, yes. people use it. So that's, I think, is the, the biggest challenge, yeah. That's amazing. And how did you go about overcoming that challenge? I had in total built six startups and now I'm building my seventh startup, but my first two startups failed. So I think one of the ways I overcome the challenge is by failing and learning from my failures. <laughs> and in the third startup, it basically came down to the point that you really have to understand what is a product market fit. That you are building a product not because it's a cool technology or because you think it's a great idea, but you really listen to the customers and understand that there's a need in the market for that. 
Definitely. And it's a tough thing to do. I remember about 10 years ago, I had a startup. And when we first started, this was sort of before the Lean startup was famous and before customer development and all the, the great methodologies that now exist. So we made the mistake of when I had my business 10 years ago, or maybe a bit more, we made the mistake of build it and they will come. We thought that we would, would build this amazing product, which we thought that we would have people lining up around the corner waiting to buy it from us. And what we learned yeah. after six months of lots of work is that nobody wanted what we made. And, and some people saw a small part as useful, but overall the whole software was didn't hit the mark at all. I remember at that time, I was sort of hit in the face with customer development, with product market fit with so many lessons that it took me years to learn them. How was that journey for you? What were you learning of the failures and trying hard and thinking differently? What did you learn during that journey? How was it? Well, I mean, journey was awesome. I think I always say, like nowadays I speak a lot. I'm also a mentor of Google Launchpad and various organizations. And I often, when I meet startups, I say, don't worry about the success and failure, enjoy the journey. So the journey, I irrespective of whether I succeeded or not for a given startup was awesome. So that is something I would definitely not take back. But in terms of what I really learned is, and this is something where I quite find it interesting when I was doing my master's in Cambridge, I kept on listening that people saying, know your customers, know your customers are. And you keep on listening to that phrase over and over again but until you actually go and build something it's the same mistake we do i mean we often don't know who are our customers who are our users and another thing is who your early adopters so there are these few things that i just really understand now is customers may not be your early adopters and your early adopters may not be customers so a lot of startups make a mistake of first going to their customers, which in some cases could be banks, and then they fail because they don't want your product while you have to go to the route of they go to early adopter market and then go to the majority market, which is often your customer market. And this is something I kind of basically learned. One of the things that perhaps one of the most important things that I learned. Could you give us an example of how you learned that? Because I think it's such an important distinction of identifying the early adopters versus your more mainstream customers that will come later on. How did you learn that differentiation? Sure. So let me give this example of this startup which I said about machine learning, which was around driving data. So our initial plan was, okay, young people end up paying high insurance premiums just because they don't have a long history of driving history. So why don't we track how they are driving? They share the data, and then the insurance companies, based on the actual driving pattern, uh, calculate the risk premium of the insurance. So we thought, okay, who are our customers? Our customers are insurance companies. So, of course, you know, if you go to the insurance companies and say, look, we are building this, you want to be our customers. Naturally, mm. they will say, no, we don't care. <laughs> we can do it ourselves. Why do we need you? And secondly, is no, we don't care. We are just a startup. You know, So that was the challenge that we faced. Then we realized that our early adopters are our users or the ones who are young drivers. So instead of going to the customers first, we first tried to create a community or driver group for these people who are young, who are interested in what we are building. They are motivated both intrinsically and extrinsically to be part of this. And within a um, few months, we had thousands of people using it. And I remember within a span of six months, if I'm right, we had five to 10 million driving kilometers of data that is people have shared with us. Wow. Then when we wow. went to insurance companies or they invited us, they were super interested because then we had the data. So 
instead of trying to sell the insurance company directly, which we spent some time and wasted some time, well, what we learned is first go to the earlier doctor market, get the users. And this is standard textbook. It's nothing new, but I have so many times seen companies making this mistake over and over again that they go and spend too much time acquiring these often big customers. But that's not the way to do that. First, get your users, get the, create a value proposition, get to the earlier doctor market, and then go to your majority customers. That's really great. What happened with that company later on? So that comes to the other part of me. I'm both minimalist and I'm very, I do a lot of meditation. And in 2017, I left all my startups. That is something that I felt internal that it's time for me to take a break from everything. I was earning a lot of money and I felt not comfortable actually. It just, I felt inner calling through my meditation that okay, I need to leave everything. That startup, the other the co-founders, the other two guys, they continued doing that. I think half of it was acquired by another company in Belgium and it continued doing that. But I personally left the company uh, 2017 and that has been another second part of my journey which I'm very grateful of that I had this intuition that I need to leave things and, and do something else in life. How did you find that? Obviously, during the meditation, when you get quiet, then you can start to hear what's really happening in yourself. But that would have been such a tough decision. And I'm sharing that, I guess, in some way. When I had my startup, I did that for five years. I also had to leave it. In my case, it was very tough, essentially killing me to an extent, like extremely long hours. I wasn't coping very well. The team was growing. I wasn't able to do and perform how I wanted. I had differences with co-founders. And in my case, it was almost like the other end of extreme from your side. In my case, I had to leave for my sanity and health and then to almost hit a reset button. But it was such a difficult choice. I remember it took me over a year to even come around to making it. And looking back, it was good. But at the time, I felt like even my identity was so tied up with being an entrepreneur and then walking away or choosing to walk away from this company that I had built, I found it really, really tough. And, it, and yeah, as I said, it took me a long time. How was that, that journey for you? Quite surprisingly, not that difficult. Actually, I have always been very intuitive, even right when I was an undergrad student. And I don't know when, maybe growing up in India, maybe I have no idea how do I have it, but I never had that kind of doubts in me. It's simple example, when I finished Cambridge, I had offers of earning a lot of money, but I just knew that I have to do my own startup and I had almost no money. And I didn't know how this whole thing will work out. I had no money. I was living in a room with just a bed, which was like the smallest room that one can ever see. <laughs> but, you know, that's just, I just knew I have to do this. It's the same thing here. I just knew that I had to do this. Wow, that's amazing. And then how was the process of changing your life from startups to what was next? So the process was that since I had a lot of time, I kind of started doing nothing. Uh, I But what happened is I started writing. And that was the most interesting part that I never thought I could write. But since I had time, I said, okay, let me start writing. And I started writing on LinkedIn. And not only on AI, but on startup, sales, marketing, various topics. Some of my articles, if you go on LinkedIn on sales, on growth hacking, actually became quite popular. Uh, liked by some of the Amazon bestseller authors, top VCs, and they shared the articles. And that made me feel like, wow, there's a lot of things that I have interesting to share with the world. And the phase that would have never started had I not left this thing. And what happened because of writing, people from around the world started inviting me, saying, okay, do you want to come and talk? 
can give you a talk. And again, that's something I would have never thought that people would invite me to come and speak. And I never, normally, I hardly reached out to people. So last year, I, I mean, in the last one and a half years, I think I spoke over 70 events in 25 countries. And most of it was basically invited because people read what I'm writing and things like that. That's, again, something, a very interesting experience that I had because I get to meet a lot of people all over the world. I'm not a professional public speaker. I don't want to be a professional public speaker. But that was a phase of life that I really enjoyed. And the book writing was the same thing that I remember I was giving a talk in Heidelberg and this guy comes to me and says, why did you write a book? And I was like, okay, why would I write it? And he said that because most of my talks, I always got a great feedback from people about my talks. And I, what I found out that people like because I shared my experiences. So I'm not talking about what others are doing. I'm not talking about what Google is doing, what Microsoft is doing. I'm just talking about what I did. So I have built different AI systems. I have different experiences. I share what I have done. And that people often like. So then I thought, okay, maybe I'll just start writing. Uh, I'll combine all my experiences that I have over 10 years of using or building AI systems and write it down in the form of a book. And that came out because someone basically came and asked me. There is a great book I often talk about. It's called Surrender Experiment. And this is basically you're surrendering yourself to the universe rather than trying to go in a very specific direction. You're just letting the universe give you those signs and you just follow those signs. And it's, it's, it made open doors that I would have never thought that I would be doing. I see that as quite courageous, actually, being able to free up your time for the next phase of your life or your career to have a chance to surface. Because you know how generally we're just so busy and so tied up in what we're doing in our day-to-day and we have our plans on where, where we're going and what we want to do. We generally leave very little or no time for our next calling to surface up. I think it's quite a unique way that you go about doing it. I think it's quite courageous to function in this way. What is your philosophy? What is your take on this? I don't think it's courageous. I think that's just natural. I think not doing that would be very high risk for me. So if I don't explore my life to the fullest potential that I could and explore all the different possibilities that the universe of the world could give to me rather than fixing myself to one part and not exploring the other things that could have happened. So to me, that's natural, not courageous. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm glad that we have this different perspective and you know that I get to ask you about it and learn from your perspective. It's, I'm sure a lot of the listeners would find the same as in like, I'm sure there's listeners that share your perspective that it is not courageous and that it's the best thing to do and that there will be other people out there that think more like me and to say that that is courageous. So it's great. I'm glad that I get to ask you about it. I'll ask you some more so I can learn. <laughs> it's great. So why do you think that doing different things allows you to live a better life or a more complete life? Because I think we often have various talents and we are not exploring those talents because we are too fixated with one part. And just giving from my example of my life rather than just giving a philosophical answer is writing is one of those things. Two years ago, I would have never thought I could write and or ever thought that I would be a good public speaker. I can go and speak in front of hundreds of people. But I'm very glad that I did explore that part of me and it made me realize certain aspects about me. So I think the idea of doing many things is a way to find the true potential that we have. And we often think, I think too low about us, but our potential is way bigger than what we think. And the only way to find that is just doing things. 
and of course failing some and and then finding something it's just like a startup right you start do something you fail you learn you grow and the only way you can do that the only way you can grow is by doing different things otherwise why how would you grow if you're just too comfortable in your current life there is no opportunity to grow that's true if you are uh, comfortable and essentially doing the same thing all the time that is not an environment for growing i totally agree with that some people would ask you about what if you pursue one path to a very long extent. So say one of the startups, one of the companies. I know that a lot of the listeners that are thinking about doing a startup, an AI startup, or that are doing it, they see themselves as what success looks like in their mind is for this company to grow in number of people, grow in revenues, for them to have a team and for them to ideally lead that organization for a long period of time. That's what success looks like in their mind. What is your take on that? How do you see it? So I will answer this in two ways. The first part is success cannot be defined by an external factor. External factors means number of employees, growth number, or anything, because then there is no end to that journey and that path. Success is defined inside, and there are ways we can identify that success without perhaps achieving any of that. And my definition of success is finding inner peace and joy in life. So that's the way I define success. But I also agree to the part of pursuing and building something because I think the life should we live in this world should not be only for us. We should contribute to this world for the welfare of the people who may not be that lucky. So then comes the third part of my life, which I didn't mention, that although I was speaking and writing, through that process, I actually ended up finding what I'm doing now, which I truly want to do perhaps for the rest of my life. So there is a point that you I find that oh, this completely makes sense. And that also comes from inside, not from outside. It just comes from inside. You feel that this is exactly what I wanted to always looking for. And I would have never found this had I not taken that break, had I not started writing, had I not traveled around the world to speak and meet all of those people. So I think at a certain point, yes, when you cr- truly find something that you really want to do, then you just keep to that and pursue that perhaps for longer than that's fantastic and what was the process that led you to finding this how did it happen so few of the things that always interested me if i go back even 10 years was i was always uh, interested in education sector so when i was even in belgium that's 2004 five some of the friends we actually started an ngo helping schools in india so i was always driven by education sector so that is something was very internal to me and i was always driven by creating value for society and specifically ai that how I realized last year when I was in Vietnam that I realized how much AI can actually benefit the society, people living in the bottom of the society. And I often say that the value of AI is not building autonomous cars and robots, not at the top of the society, but value of AI will be to change life at the bottom of the society. So there are these few thoughts that I had, like how can AI be used really for the social good? How can the education sector be changed? And the third process was when I was traveling and speaking in these different events, I met a lot of talented people from Serbia, Montenegro, different countries, but they often don't have the access to opportunities as same as, say, someone living in U.S. or in Western Europe has. All of those three things were in me, and I wanted to do something that could perhaps tackle all of those three issues. And somehow, again, I don't know how the process was, but through various trying out different things, I realized that there is a way that I could build something that where a global community of people from all over the world come together, collaborate, learn from each other, and solve social problems. 
So it just clicked all of that together. That's perhaps was the process. It's just trying out different things, knowing what I really perhaps want to do, and then connecting all the dots together. And just somehow it just magically connects one day. That's incredible. What does that look like now? So we started this startup like three months ago. And in the last three months, we have been working on four projects with you and in Nepal, uh, and then crop yield with guys from NASA on Mars anomaly detection. Another one is with a startup in Sweden and the fourth startup is on PTSD. And there is a community around 150 to 200 people from 35 countries who are collaborating together to build these solutions, which is very incredible. Think in this way that this is goes against to any norm that we have been told. So these people who are located in remote parts of the world, different time zones from Australia to Brazil, different cultures, backgrounds are not necessarily the most, how will I say, educated time in a way of data science because they are just also learning through online courses, just coming together and collaborating not competing with each other and solving quite interesting social problems. We often write about these results that we get. So in one of the models that we started six weeks ago to identify three, we were able to get around 95% accuracy within the test data. And that's actually very interesting. And this is just a group of people that came and built that. I'm pretty sure that a company with even 10, 5 people or 5 to 6 people will not be able to achieve that kind of results in such a quick time. Because when you bring 30, 40 people together, that is a much powerful than let's say four or five people sitting and trying to build something. And that has been the experience till now. In the next few weeks, we are starting three more projects, one with the NGO based in India who are tackling sexual harassment cases. They have a lot of data about women reporting about sexual harassment. So we are trying to find a model to predict potentially, may prevent those cases. The second was with an organization based in uh, US, which are into trying to reduce gang violence in Chicago. And the third one, we are in early discussion with the government or Department of Agriculture in Botswana, and they want to use AI to predict crop yield because they have a lot of data from different sources. And this has been a really interesting journey till now. We almost every day get around 10 to 15 people applying from, again, all over the world who have very interesting stories. So I get to talk to these people, interview them, work with them, collaborate, make them collaborate, and see how well these people are giving their time to build something for the world and solving the problem. And those people that reach out, are they looking to participate in initiatives that you guys are about to kick off or are they coming to you with initiatives? Both, but primarily people who want to be participate in those initiatives. Wow, that's incredible. And how do you find and choose the initiatives to tackle? Mostly driven by the amount of impact that solution would be creating in the world. So we would not take very typical business case, which is, let's say, improving the backend in a bank or something. But if we see that this is going to affect the solution in farmers in Nepal, or there's another project that I spoke on Friday, and we will perhaps start in a couple of weeks, which is with an organization called Wild Me, and they are into conserving wild animals, which I think has a huge impact also in the in the society and the world. We pick projects which we think potentially have a huge impact in the society and overall also the world. Incredible. And then once you pick an initiative, what does the implementation process look like? 
So what we do is something is we pick 40 people, around 40 to 50 people. So these are the people that I personally talk with and go, go have an interview process, a selection process based on various factors, both the knowledge of AI and machine learning, but also the intrinsic motivation that they have to be part of such a challenge. Pick them up and put them together. Then there comes the second part of the magic because this is often a self-organized and self-managed groups. What I have seen that, of course, there are certain processes that I reinforce. But when you bring people who are highly motivated and want to do something, they start self-managing. They started creating their own groups. They start tackling the problem in various ways. So, for example, give you an example. So when we started this tree identification challenge, we had around 40 people from 19 countries. After the first kickoff call, what I suggested that let's, there are many ways to tackle the problem. There were some groups were created. So a group of people said, we want to label the data because we are not that experienced. They are not that experienced, but they want to label the data. So there was a subgroup of people, around five to 10 people said, okay, they will spend next three to four weeks labeling the data. Another group of people started saying, we want to apply, use GANs to generate new data sets. Another group of people said, okay, we want to use mask RCN and method to identify the trees. A third group, fourth group said, we want to use unit. So all these subgroups were formed kind of automatically based on the interest and the skills that people think they could contribute to. And then they started tackling the problem. And this made things very fast. But that's the power of community. And also people are observing and learning from each other. So there were people who were not that experienced who wrote to me that just by being in that group for like a week, they learned a lot more than perhaps they've learned in a course because they could see how people are interacting, how they are learning, how they are exchanging information and building the solutions. That's the way this whole thing works. So there is a term for this called self-organized learning environments. And I think this is how the future of education should be. Rather than people sitting and doing some courses, imagine how powerful it is that people learning from each other while solving a problem. And this is how this whole thing works out. That's fantastic. Do you find that people have to come in with particular skills in order to be able to help? And if so, what are those skills? I mean, they should have some background in AI and machine learning. I normally at least check that they have done few projects because in today's world, everyone have access to online courses and they can do those courses and of course implement some projects part of the course or outside the course. That's something I, I look for. I also look for the, what is the intrinsic motivation is. That's another very important thing that why they want to do this. And the third thing that I try to see is an ability to initiate or do new things. So whether they have in the past done something, not necessarily related to AI or machine learning, but done something that they have started. Like, for example, I was talking to a, a lady in Lebanon and she said she's starting to start a school camp for children or coding camp for, for young children. So these kind of things that people who are not only just busy with their daytime job or their classes, but they're also doing other things in life. That's the kind of people that we look for. That's great. And how do these projects then get implemented? As in um, the rollout or productionizing, how does the products that are created get to the users? So we partner, so we are just building a machine learning model, but it's the, let's say the client in our case, let's say the UN, or let's say the startup in the Sweden called Space PT, or the guy with the PTSD challenge. They are the responsible for integrating the machine learning model to their actual product and launching it. So we are not actually building the product. We are not responsible for launching the product. We are just responsible for building the machine learning model part. And then it's up to them to integrate that, which we, of course, help them, but they would integrate that and they would sell it. So we don't create our own challenges. We just take challenges from organizations or startups and build a model for them. 
That is great. And do the organizations that request the initiatives, do they partner with other organizations to create the products to bring to life your machine learning models? Or do they have their internal teams also? Like, um, often what happens is a lot of these startups have their own internal team who are software engineers. What they do lack is the data science. Or they might don't, don't, they don't want to hire a full-time data scientist or a group of data science people in their teams because building a machine learning model is not just hiring one data scientist. You have to have people tagging the data. You have to have data wranglers. You have to have creating machine learning models. So even if you want to create a basic model, you might need a group of three to five people. So many startups may not want to hire that people. And even in outsourcing, they may not want to outsource to a software house because that is quite expensive. In our case, we do it, first of all, if it's an open source code, then we do it for free. And if it's they want it to be a close code to be closed, uh, we ask for very nominal fee. So it's for them, it's kind of a, quite a win-win situation because they get to build something which is much faster, or perhaps more efficient, as well as within their budget. But they do have their own software team, either outside or in-house to do that. Like there is an organization, only yesterday I got an email from called Is Good for AI. It's based in Australia. And the guy, Max, he, he just emailed me and says, hey, you know, we have the software, we have the people, but we need someone to help us build a machine learning model. Yeah, so that's the kind of organizations that come to us. That they have those people already in-house or external software engineers, but just want to help, help them build the model. That's really great. And could you tell us about some of the impacts from one of these projects? Yeah, sure. Let me give you this example of uh, one which we almost finished this week, we'll be finishing called, which is with the startup based in Sweden. And what they are trying to build is their basic idea is that a lot of fire, forest fires are started by trees falling over to overhead cables, power cables. And these are these power cables run thousands of miles. There is no proper way to identify those risk or risky trees. So what they want to use is a satellite image to identify those potential risky trees so that some precautions could be taken, could be taken and that would prevent forest fire. So they came to us and said, hey, can you help us build a machine learning model that would identify trees through satellite images? And that was a challenge we started and we are almost finishing and we have got really good results. They already started integrating our model into their product. And they're also already start trying to sell that. I know showing that to their potential customers in, in Australia, in US, as well as in, in Europe. That's really great. And what in that case, since it's an organization that's creating a product with the assistance from your organization, what does the economics of collaboration look like in that type of case? In this type of case, since they want the code to be closed, so they don't want it to be an open source code, and the data that we are generating also, they want to retain the data, so they have to pay a very nominal monthly fee. So we ask for a basic monthly fee, which is over two months. All our challenges are eight weeks, so they will pay that a monthly fixed fee for two over two months. Part of that money goes back to the community, people who are contributing to the project, and some of the part of the cost is the money is kept for us to sustain the company and the infrastructure that we are providing. That is really great. And I know that besides this, which I assume that it's your main focus, you have a number of other, I think, mostly advisory roles in companies. Is that right? Yeah, mostly uh, like organizations like Google Launchpad and Impact Hub and WeWork, yes. And how do you split your time? 
I think I have a lot of time because of, again, comes back to the meditation that I, one of the benefits of doing a regular meditation is you have no stress. So I have been being stressed for, I think, maybe at least two, three years, if not more. And once you have no stress, you're always like your level is calm. Your always mind is calm. And then it just happens that you don't sleep. You don't need much sleep because we, our body requires a lot of sleep. In our daytime, we are actually very active and stressed and brings all those different emotions. But once your mind is, or your body is at peace, I hardly sleep like four hours a day. So maximum five. So once you sleep like four to five hours what? a day. You don't need much. And you're always joyous. You have a full of energy. I'm not tired. I'm just full of energy. But this is actually, if you read texts about meditation and yoga, a lot of people say that, that you could achieve this level of sleep. And when people say you need eight hours, I think that's crap. I'm going to give you an example. I mean, I don't sleep more than four hours, four or five hours. I don't sleep. My weekends and weekdays, they are seven days a week. And irrespective of weekends or weekdays, I sleep four to five hours. That gives me, at, on an average, 20, 19, 18 to 19 hours per day for seven days a week. That's a lot of time to do a lot of things. So it's not just the work. I do many other things. I love doing sports. I dance tango. I'm learning how to play music. So because you have a lot of time, you are able to manage things. That is outstanding. Uh, what type of meditation do you do and what does that routine look like? When I started, I was doing every day around an hour long meditation in the morning. But now I don't have to have this routine anymore. Now I feel that I'm in the state always. So even if I'm speaking with you, I feel I'm in a meditative state, which is basically meaning that you are completely aware of your current, your present. You have your mind is calm. And I, I feel that state all the time. For example, I don't know if I told you, I don't have a phone. It's almost one and a half years now. And not having a really? phone is another helps me to be in that state all the time. Because in today's world, the moment someone gets a free time, they just open the phone and start looking at it. But people don't have this ability to just sit and sit quietly and do nothing. And once you are able to do that, your mind is rested. And of course, it creates new ideas, but also you are rested. I actually wrote an article a few weeks ago. It was published in WeWork. Also, I put it in LinkedIn. Is that we need to redefine productivity. And we, in the Western world, often define productivity as how much are we producing every single moment. That creates a lot of stress. Instead, mm. I think productivity is more how do you find inner peace. And one of the ways to do it is just sit idle and be quiet. And it could be anywhere. You can do that while in a tram, in a metro, rather than keeping every moment of our life busy. And that's what I'm saying, that my state of meditative is now almost all 24-7, because I feel that level of peace and calm in me all the time, no matter what my doing. So I don't need to explicitly sit. I also do that, but I don't have to do that every day as a routine. And how long did it take you to get to this state? And what did you have to do to get there? I think it took a couple of years. Always interested in spirituality growing up in India, and that was something just part of it, but I was never that in this state. So it started a couple of years ago, and also that was in the same time when I left the companies and I had more free time. That's kind of in a way luxury, but, uh, and I spent most of my, a lot of my time, not mostly a lot of my time, just reading books, listening to talks. There's a great guy from Australia. I don't know if you know, uh, his name is Ajahn Braham. He's a, a Buddhist monk. He's British, but lives in Australia, and he has a lot of great talks in YouTube. Often I listen to him, read different books, and spend a lot of time thinking, uh, meditating. It just was just in the natural to be in the state over time. That is great. Tell me, with all the AI initiatives that you advise, assist with, oversee, besides the ones that are being done in your organization at the moment, what are some other ones that you could share with us? 
I have to think about it. Actually, I am not very aware of a lot of initiatives. I know different people are doing different things. My most of my time spent on my own thing. What am I doing? The ones which I'm aware of, for example, which is let's say the closest that comes to my mind is OpenAI, which I think is a great initiative. I'm not very well aware how well they are doing, so I cannot really judge. But I like the initiative of OpenAI that you are making. AI accessible to a lot of people. I also overall like the idea that a lot of the tools that are being built by Google and Amazon, by TensorFlow, and are already are made open for other people to use it. I think these are the things that I like overall. This gives the opportunity for other people to actually utilize those tools and apply them in solving problems. And that's what makes us able to do what we are doing. So these would be the, the ones which come to my mind. I'm not very aware of very specific uh, use cases that organizations are tackling, primarily because I don't spend a lot of time reading about this. Yeah, no, no, that's good. And could you tell us a bit about your book? So the book was basically came from the same thought process that I, I just mentioned is one that I saw that AI has the potential to disrupt a lot of sectors like banking, insurance, and help the people at the bottom of the society. But not enough is being said about that. Often when we read about AI, it's about it's robots and, and autonomous cars and doomsday and taking away jobs. But I felt there is a need of bringing that out. But I didn't want it to be a pure like, you know, philosophical book because, again, a lot of these AI books I've seen or text is written by people who don't really understand the technology. So end up they're writing things which often may not be completely true. So I wanted to create a a book which is not only talking about those use cases, but actually also showing how to go and solve those. What are the steps to take to solve those use cases? And bringing my personal experiences to connect all the dots. So giving examples of how I did certain things, how I created, let's say, the community and gathered so much of data. How did we build different AI products? So that's what the book is about. Fantastic. And what are some of those experiences that you discuss in the book? So one of the experiences I talk about is overcoming challenges with data. Let's say this is one of the key things that a lot of people talk about. And the example that I gave you in the beginning of our discussion about how we managed to gather so much of data in such a short time, despite having very limited funding and having the insurance companies not believing in us. So that is one of the examples I say, okay, what the way to do that is actually find your early doctors, connect to the intrinsic and extrinsic motivation educate them, don't force them to provide you data because that doesn't work. What are the things that we did and how did we build a trust among our users that they shared their, their driving data? Because in a way, driving data is quite private. Because we know exactly where they are going, what are they doing? So that is one of the examples that I gave in the book, how other organizations can build such kind of solutions or gather data from their users. And towards the end of your book, you cover some of the intelligent products of the future. What were some of the things that you covered in that part? I basically say that when we talk about intelligence, and this is also in the beginning I talked about it, I do not believe that the future products will be replacing humans, or at least not in the near future. I mean, I don't know what will happen in 15 years. No one knows that. But in five years timeline to 10 years, I think that our AI, despite all this hype, have various limitations. And one of the limitations is that, first of all, it's not able to capture the emotional intelligence. It's still basically under learning patterns and identifying certain patterns and forecasting the future based on past patterns. And the second thing is that they all act 
in a way like a black box. So we cannot rely on these systems to make decisions about our life. And we should build these systems, at least for the next five to 10 years, as which are helping us to make decisions. So there is a term, instead of artificial intelligence, use the word augmented intelligence, that how human intelligence and machine intelligence can come together and help to make better products, not replacing necessarily humans. But of course, in some basic things, yes, they would replace humans because the work itself for humans do is very, very rudimentary and makes no sense for humans to do it. But majority of the cases, it won't be that machines will just replace humans because there's a lot of other aspects in these machines that I don't think we should just let them replace us. And I think the future products that I see is more augmenting the intelligence of humans, helping us make better decisions rather than completely replacing us. That's great. That is the way that I definitely hope it goes. And I'm glad that there's people like you writing about it and, and bringing this vision to life. I also wanted to ask you about the challenges with user adoption. What are some ways that you discuss in the book around how that can be overcome? First of all, the first step to overcoming the challenge is connecting to an intrinsic motivation. So users they should have an intrinsic motivation to share their data. An intrinsic motivation is often based on solving a social problem. Could be. So in our case, when we were doing the data around the driving data, we realized that a lot of people want to make roads safer. So we connected to that saying, hey, this is intrinsic motivation is help us make the roads safer. Then the next step is once you connect to an intrinsic motivation, that's not enough for people to share the data, by the way. You have to also educate them. They have to know that how the data will be used. And I'm not meaning that using some terms and agreements, which hardly anyone reads, but actually putting an effort to tell them in simple words. So one of the things that we did was we actually wrote physical letters in one of the cases and sent those letters to people. People connect to those kind of, still the old traditional way of doing things. The third thing is once you achieve that, that you have to let the users be in control. And that's absolutely important that they feel that it's not just an app they will say, okay, and they will keep on taking the data from somewhere without they knowing it, but they should always feel that they are in control of the data sharing, that they could say no at, at the point when they want to say no. That also builds a trust. And then the final part of that is provide an extrinsic motivation for them to share the data. An extrinsic motivation could be maybe a reduced premium. In our case, was basically we didn't have this partnership with insurance companies. So we basically were saying, okay, drive better, score points, create a gamification, and then get a free coffee. And that was good enough for people to then share the data. Yeah, that's really good. And could you tell me a bit more about the ways around the data controls? How do you see that being implemented in a robust way that it gives users the trust where they can control, where they can choose, say, what type of users or what type of algorithms their data can and cannot go into? Well, I don't think users can suggest what algorithms because they often don't have the idea of algorithms, neither they care about it perhaps. But I think what is important for them to realize that they can at any moment, if they want, remove the data that they have shared and stop the data from being shared. So again, coming back to the same example of driving, if someone is taking a, a, a drive, a ride, let's say, which he or she doesn't want us to know. So they should have a way. They said, I don't want this ride to be recorded. So and then that, that's fine. So they feel that, okay, they can decide at a point, I don't want this to be recorded. But on the other hand side, for example, insurance companies, some of them did, is they attached a box and a device, OBD device in the car. 
So what does that do? It's no matter. They have no way to stop the device because it's actually attached physically in the car and the user and the driver has no access to that in a way to stop that recording. So they feel that they have, if they don't want the drive to be recorded, they can do that. So the adoption of such devices is way low because people don't. I mean, that is only adopted by company cars or fleets, but not personal drives. So that's one of the way I would say that instead of people do not care about algorithms, I mean, I don't think they really understand or care, but they want to know that they can stop the data, they can delete the data. I think that's the key. And they can review the data, what data that someone has. So we had given every users had a dashboard. They could log in and see what are the data that we have. They could see their previous ride, what they have done. That is, helps them also to be a good driver, but also let them aware of what data that we have. Very nice. And tell me, what are some applications of AI that you would like to see for the people in the bottom of the pyramid, as you were saying? So I think healthcare would be one of the key directions, should be, because I think banking, insurance, of course, there are that goals. But healthcare is so many people in the world don't have access to doctors. Like I was reading uh, some statistics, which says that in countries like in India or in many African countries, there are less than two doctors, if I'm quite right, per thousand people. Wow. And all of these people are located also in remote parts. So even if statistically there is one doctor or two doctors per thousand people, but to achieve reach to the doctor, they have to perhaps walk maybe if not hundreds, at least tens of kilometers. So that makes healthcare very inaccessible to, to a lot of people. And I think healthcare is a very important thing. But one thing that has happened that internet and 5G connection is almost everywhere now. And people have phones. Even people, I will not say really at the bottom, but people, I was quite surprised even when I was in India last year, I saw like almost everyone, including people who are rickshaw drivers, they have a internet phone actually. So I think I would like to see a lot more work on healthcare. So one of the challenges that we are doing now is around PTSD. So if you know PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. And the guy who reached out to me, he suffered PTSD. He's a Swiss guy. He was the head of UN Congo mission. And while being in Congo, they suffered an attack in 2006. And him, including him, many people in that group suffered PTSD over the next 7, 10 years. He recovered from that. And he was also working for UN in the refugee camps. And he was saying that a lot of children, perhaps around 80% of the children in refugee camps suffer PTSD. Wow. And what happens is that a lot of people who suffer the stress don't have the knowledge also. They don't really know what is PTSD. They don't even know what things to do. And I think that's another direction that mental health is something that I think hugely helps. AI can benefit, provide access to a lot of people solving their mental health stress so healthcare is something that I would love to see much more applications going on using AI. Really great. We'll change tack now and I'll ask you some rapid fire questions. The first one, I'm so curious to hear your answer with such a broad and diverse career and experience. I wanted to ask you, what are you most proud of that you've done in your career? I think the most proud that I'm not only in career in general is finding inner peace and being in a state as if now, which gives me the opportunity to do great things, feel joyous and happy, yet be completely content and not trying to have any stress. So that would be my biggest achievement in life, I think. That is incredible one. Really, really great. What do you see as the future challenges in AI? I think the biggest challenge is the trust and adoption. And this is also I often talk about, I don't think it's a technical challenge. I think what has happened with AI, so many people not don't trust AI. They see AI as being this invasive technology which is going to destroy the world, take away jobs. And 
I don't know if there are any studies, but I would be surprised if majority of the people in this world think negative about AI. And what happens that if you have such kind of view, adoption will be very low. People don't want to use solutions that are using that. And of course, Facebook and Google can use it in their backend and people don't are not aware of it. But I don't call that in real adoption because that their users are being forced to use those. If they're using Facebook, Facebook is using AI for image recognition. Okay, but they're forcing us in a way because we, we have to use Facebook or we have to use Google. But when it comes to building solutions that are not part of this big organization, that they cannot force us to use. I think that the biggest challenge would be how to make people trust and use those solutions. Because I sincerely believe there's a, a lot of benefit that AI can create in this society. So that's, I think, would be the biggest challenge in the next years. So true. And a really good one to tackle. Ru, this has been so much fun. I only have one last question for you, and that is a piece of advice. What would be a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with? I would say that the piece of advice would be learn to listen to your intuition and follow that fearlessly and not worry about the consequences because we have just perhaps one life and I think intuition is the ultimate truth that we should listen to because often a lot of things that logical mind cannot think of, unaware of, and we have to cross, let's say, whatever you call a God or the universe or something and just go and do it, what you really want to do. That is fantastic. And that is a brilliant note to end on. Ru, thank you so much for sharing your journey, perspectives, learnings, insights, and your viewpoints. It's been an absolute blast to get to speak to you today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Philip, for having me. It was a pleasure, actually, from my side also to speak on various topics, (laughs) not only AI. (laughs) Exactly. I really enjoyed it. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.